Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Originally from New Jersey, Anthony DeVito is a New York City-based comedian who's performed on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, released a half-hour special on Comedy Central, and a full special, Brain Noise, in May 2022 on YouTube. DeVito was a writer and sidekick of Sam Morrill on MSG's People Talking Sports and Other Stuff. He followed that up by writing for Netflix's The Break with Michelle Wolf, which also led him to writing jokes for Wolf when she delivered the keynote at the 2018 White House Correspondents' Dinner. You may have heard him talking about his relationship with his grandmother on This American Life, but you may not yet have seen or heard his one-man show, My Dad Isn't Danny DeVito. He's taking that show to the 2022 Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but first, he sat with me to discuss his life and career. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Anthony DeVito. Sean. Last things first, uh, thank you for welcoming me into your home. Please, a, pl- a pleasure. We've been meaning to have you over for years. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was joking with you in email that, that, you know, I went over to Dan Soder's place. I didn't realize... I was almost coming back over to Dan yeah. Soder's old place. You're like so- next door to where he and Vecchione used to live. Yeah, Soder and Mike lived r- right next door. <laughs> like right next door. Not like, oh, when you say that, it's like a couple houses over. No, Mike was right there. We used to scream at him um, <laughs> in the backyard. Uh, yeah, it was awesome, man. The, the pandemic, you know, Mike and I just used to sit on the stoop during the pandemic and just drink beers and just uh, wonder if we all were going to die. <laughs> It was a great time. Um, <laughs> then he started dating another comedian and moved yeah. out of moved out of Astoria. Yeah, it was nice though. It was nice with Katie here because uh, Katie and Julia became friends. And um, that's your fiance. Yeah, Julia's my fiance. And then yeah, so it was great, man. So we were sad to see uh, Mike and Dan uh, leave. So I know you've crossed paths with with uh, Mike and Dan. Have you ever crossed paths with Danny DeVito? No, uh, no, it was just years ago, and there was rumors that I used to do this hostel show mm-hmm. um, early on in comedy, I think on the Upper West Side or Upper East Side, and there were rumors that he would, like, come by, it was one area wherever he was close to living, and there were rumors that he would come by and watch the show every now and again, so I was excited, because I thought, I was like, well, if he hears the name, and if I'm kind of funny that night, right. maybe, you know what I mean, we strike up a friendship. <laughs> <laughs> not like you know, not in a in a psychopath way where I'm just like, this guy's gonna make my life like in a way that I was like, you know, he's like, hey, that seems to be Thomas, seems to be you're funny, you're funny. Hey, why don't we just uh, we'll, we'll be friendly, you know? <laughs> and who knows what blossoms from there? I mean, he does seem like that kind of guy, right? Doesn't he? He seems like a very like everyman kind of guy. Very personable. Very personable. Very um, like I, I saw a picture of Twitter yesterday. Not yesterday. Maybe a couple of days ago. Where he just he took a picture of his uh, gross foot, uh, and I, I was like, yeah, this guy's great. Um, so uh, yeah, the hope is that he would uh, put his name on the show. That would be the coolest thing in the world. Right. <laughs> my my dad is not Danny DePito. 
presented, presented by, by Danny DeVito. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> That's the dream. <laughs> I have no idea how to make that happen, but... Hmm. Someday. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in this room and I'm, I'm staring at that... Is it a framed T-shirt of Hawaii? This is a framed sweatshirt of sweatshirt Hawaii. Sweatshirt of Hawaii. So, so Greg Stone and his wife, Tita, uh, who I lived with for years. Okay. Um, Greg, right. obviously, another comic. Uh, I, I've known Greg since I was in high school. I've been best friends since high school. I wore, I wore that shirt every day. And they snuck, they snuck into my room. <laughs> it was filthy. Filthy shirt. Mm-hmm. So they snuck into my room, took it, framed it so I could never wear it again. <laughs> so <laughs> most of the clothes I own are like over 20 years old. That's, that's, that's not a bad thing. No, is I don't. It? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> is, I mean, it, is it the interviewer says thinking about his wardrobe? Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right, right. That's cool, right? Like I think that's cool. <laughs> no, I don't care. I've never uh, put any emphasis on um, uh, clothing or appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, Julia gets involved when she feels like she has to. Okay. I'll see things disappear where I'm like, "Where'd that thing go?" And she, you know, right. it's like, "Oh, that thing is trash now." Because I had too many holes in it, and she was right. She's always right. But I, as I was looking at it, I was thinking, I don't want to – for people who haven't seen your one-man show. Sure. Or even your your uh, brand-new stand-up special on YouTube. Sure. Brain Noise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to me that – okay, so you're from New Jersey. Yes. But then you went all the way to Miami for school. Yes. And then from Miami, you went all the way to Hawaii. Yes. Were you running from something? <laughs> well, I'll say Miami, I was running, not, not a crime, if that's what you're insinuating. <laughs> oh, I mean, if you could be like running Sean, away I am from, not my father. Running away from your identity, running away from... Sure. It's just like, in the esoteric sense. Sure. Yeah, existentially. Were right. you running away from yourself? Um, I would say that from Jersey to Florida, for sure. Because, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I love Jersey, but like I had had my fill and sort of was like, I think at some point I was like, oh, I, I think to, to grow or kind of to be full blown who I am in terms of like comedic sensibilities and and honestly like comedic sensibilities just meaning personality uh i was like i need to go somewhere else and miami honestly i picked miami just because i loved police academy miami uh (laughs) simon miami beach was my favorite one (laughs) i had never been there and um and they had given me a a good amount of financial aid so i was like well this seems like a no-brainer so i went to miami and then from miami uh met uh this girl who i was like oh this will be my wife this is the love of my life and then when she broke up with me going into my fifth year of college because mm-hmm. i have five years for architecture so oh, i thought it was for football because oh yeah you have no, i had to give it up football school, had, yeah. so you're like well, you're a fifth year senior <laughs> so you can play uh, yeah re- retain your eligibility i don't like to talk about my linebacker days sean that'll be my next show i mean that's the through line between you and Dwayne the rock johnson yeah, we're very similar. Yeah, 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 yeah. This happens all the time. <laughs> they used to call me the pebble. <laughs> so from there, uh, uh, she breaks up with me. Mm-hmm. I was sort of in this position of like, oh, I, I want to like, when you're that hurt, I think you go like, oh, I, I want to reinvent myself. Right. So like that version of a person has not been hurt. So I moved to Hawaii uh, because I wanted to go. I wanted to leave the country. 
I wanted to get as far away as possible. Okay. But I'm also lazy, and I didn't want to learn a new language or renew my passport. So I just moved to Hawaii, and then that's sort of when the adventure of Hawaii began. With and, yeah, and that's because to stick with like a tropical theme with Miami, because you could have gone to Alaska. <laughs> I think so. And man. accomplished. I'm the a same beach thing. guy. I really think it is that. <laughs> I th- I think I was like. Even if I was going to be depressed and like, you know, if I was going to be selling, if I was going to be in, you know, whatever this disposition was, I did still want to be near a beach. Okay. Um, I think, yeah. And had you done any proper stand-up at that point? No. Okay. No, I started in New York, um, I believe like 13 years ago. Okay. So from Hawaii, then I moved, I was in Hawaii for about six months, then I moved back to Jersey. I was going to pursue architecture, did that in an office for like a year and a half. Um, and then hate, hated it. Hate, was terrible at it, also mm-hmm. hated it. Um, and f- I had friends who at the time were working in an architect's office in Paris. So from there, I lived in Paris for <laughs> about uh, about a year. Wow. Did you speak any French? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> was that a problem? Took, uh, well, I got lucky. I worked um, in the bar of this uh, um, exchange college in Paris. Okay. That was like an exchange program with NYU and American University. So I didn't really have to learn French. I took classes. And the thing with the French is like if you just try, that's all they want. You know what I mean? Like everyone's like, oh, the French are assholes. But like if you just give, a, give an attempt at French, throw them a bonjour. And they'll go, it's awful. All right. I can tell you're not French. Let me help you out. That's what I tell comedians whenever we talk about Just for Laughs. Yeah. In Montreal. I was like, if you just try. Try. Yeah. (laughs) They just want that. They just want the little (laughs) bit of effort. They want to hear a horrible bonjour. And then they'll go, all right, man, what do you need to do? Right. And and they're they're very nice from there. And they'll switch to English. Yeah. The French ones. Yes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Let's let's not do this. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I I mean, I, I, I absolutely love it there. I was like. That was, I didn't know about the Paris part. Yeah, I lived in Paris for about a year. I slept on a basically like we had um, a one bedroom. I slept on basically like a gym mat next to a radiator next to my buddy Connor who slept on the couch and our friend Shanique slept in the bedroom. And we just it was like an extension of college, but just in right. Paris and a little bit older. And but then, I mean, yeah. sleeping next to the radiator, that's still a step up from sleeping in totally. the jungle. Yeah, man. Look, the projection of like from the woods to radiator, I was like, we have a roof. I don't care. <laughs> My back is burnt, but this is incredible. <laughs> so I so last night I was I was looking at your IMDb page just to see if there's anything sure. that I didn't know about that I should bring up. Lost is not on there. Oh, sure. I got to get it on there, man. Right? Yes, I do. That was because that was before I started doing comedy. I was just a man out in the world who happened to be in the show Lost. I thought maybe it's because you were on the island. So it's, so it's just like everything else with Lost. Right, you can't right, find it. right, right. No, um, did you, had you heard of the show, seen the show when you got that all. gig? Heard of the show. Okay. Had no idea what it was about. Knew mm-hmm. that they filmed in Hawaii on uh, Diamond Head Beach, mm-hmm. and um, no, nah, yeah, this that woman just came up to me and she just asked if I wanted to be in a TV show, <laughs> and I was doing my environmental canvassing thing, and I was like, "You got it." <laughs> like, I was like, "Do you have a minute for the environment?" She's like, "Do you have a minute for show business?" Yeah, and I was like, "I certainly do, ma'am." And then it was funny because like on set is interesting because like on set you have because you know Hawaii there's a lot of military there, right? So. Um, 
that there was like a flashback scene between like these like Iraqi soldiers and like U.S. military. So you had real U.S. military there, and then you had like myself and like mm-hmm. all you know me and a bunch of other tan Hawaiian guys who looked vaguely Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. like all eating lunch together. And you could see there would be like real separation where it would be like, oh, this is interesting. Where like the guys who are U.S. military sort of snapped back into place. Not so much so that you know they were like <laughs> aiming guns at our head, but to the point where it was like, oh, this kind of put you back in the action for a second. It was interesting. So did, then, did you share any scenes with um, who would that have been? Naveen? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. His name. He played Saeed. Yeah, yeah. No, I almost did. Okay. Um, but the so one of the L.A. actors, um, Mr. Flight. And, you know, you know how it is where it's like, well, that's like there's so much union time and all these things. So they basically were scrambling. Uh So they had nobody. I was the only guy who looked remotely (laughs) close to Middle Eastern. (laughs) So I swear to God, the director came up to me and he goes, do you have any experience acting on film? And I didn't. But I said I read Michael Caine's book on film acting. Wow. And he went, we'll just grab a Hawaiian guy. And he walked away. There was a chance I could have had a line in the show playing like a young Saeed or like mm-hmm. one of his friends in a flashback. Yeah. A real a piece of regret. Oh, I thought you were going to say a real lost opportunity. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so then how did it feel then to have like, I know you did Gotham Comedy Live. Sure. Which is... Was a thing. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> on Access yeah, TV. On Access TV. But then your first, I don't want to say proper, yeah, your first proper yeah, TV credit okay. yeah. with Comedy Central yes. was back in Hawaii. Yeah, it was surreal. It was really surreal. Because you know, when I lived there, I was homeless. So it was going from, you know, being homeless in my 20s in Hawaii to coming back, like, I think, like, early 30s mm-hmm. and doing the thing that I had always wanted to do and taping my first set for Comedy Central. It was super surreal. And, you know, I like, I would look off into the distance at the woods and, like, I think people were, like, <laughs> people were, like, oh, he's being wistful. And I was, like, I'm trying to find my home. <laughs> I'm trying to find where I used to live. <laughs> was, that the, was that the moment where you're, like, I can quit the job at the Apple store or? Um, that actually happened before because, okay. um. So uh, before that had happened, I um, I think the fir- one of the first things I auditioned for was it was a time when YouTube was um, going to start doing all these like produced channels. This is probably like, yes, yeah. Do you kind of remember that? Yeah. yeah, I was working with my damn channel at the time, which okay. which had a deal with YouTube, right? So there was one. It was called the Knock TV. It was this like sports. It's going to be the sports comedy network. I auditioned. I got the role of like their host, whatever. Okay. Um, and it paid very well. So it was like I I quit the Apple Store that day. Like I they were like they were literally like you got the job. I told my boss I was like you know whatever. I was like it's been great working here. This or that. And I just walked out because normally they do like this big clap out for you and like it's a whole like <laughs> oh they do oh they do oh. they do the whole so when a person leaves when a, a worker leaves the Apple Store it's mm-hmm. customary that all the employees sort of go to the you know um to the showroom and clap the person out it's so goofy and i would always go up to customers and they would be like what's going on i'd be like i ship it out to iraq um, <laughs> but i was so i was so excited to avoid all that i like i ran out of there as fast as i could oh yeah hmm. um but i mean it, you know that 
job that I had at YouTube it didn't last very long. The show got canceled pretty quickly, but it was enough for me to sustain myself to like. I think at the time I was just featuring, but like it gave me a little bit of financial security to then roll into eventual headlining work and be a working comic. Right, because then it was a year after Adam Devine's house party where things started to like fall yeah. into place for you. Like yeah. you got you got a set on Colbert on mm-hmm. the Late Show. You got a half hour with Comedy Central. Yeah, and then your your sidekick to Sam Morrill. Yeah, yeah, man, <laughs> on the lucrative MSG channel. <laughs> I remember watching yeah, that show because it was that MSG. Show, tell me about that show because sure. it seemed so seat of the pants, <laughs> loosey goosey. Yeah, we we would have loved for almost it to like be, it was improvised. Yeah, we would have loved for it to be even more improvised. But I mean, you know, MSG. Uh, yeah, it was it was a great. It, that was another surreal thing because like Sam and I were interviewing. Athletes that we idolized as kids. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm an obs- I'm obsessed with basketball. Was obsessed with sports growing up. So to sit next to Daryl Strawberry and like kind of get to shit on him a little bit and have him laugh, I was like, life isn't real, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a wild like year in terms of like I think I got like passed at the cellar, got Colbert, and found out about like. Yeah, I think the cellar Colbert within the same week. Oh wow! So yeah, and then maybe like knowing about the Comedy Central half hour of the week before. So it all like happened very, very quickly, which was exciting. And then, yeah, after that, I worked at MSG with Sam on the show for like, I don't know, like eight months or something. No, so for both The Cellar and for Colbert, how long did it take you auditioning for both of those things? Oh, yeah. Was so, it a grind or um, did one come into place a lot quicker than the other one? I mean, The Cellar definitely came into place a lot quicker. I, I was always someone who never... Um, I found it so nerve-wracking to be there if you weren't past there, mm-hmm. um, just because it meant so much. Um, so I never really went, and Michelle Wolf had been trying to get me in there for years. We'd been friends for a long time, and then when I did the set on Colbert, Esty saw the set, and she was like, why doesn't this guy work here? And Michelle was sitting right next to her, and she goes, I've been trying <laughs> to get him to work here for years. No, do it in her voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try both. <laughs> um, and uh, and Esty, uh, Esty was like, well, have him audition tomorrow night. Okay. So it was, uh, Michelle texted me, and she was like, you have a seller audition tomorrow night. So that happened so fast, and then it was like, Two days before that, I had done Colbert or like four days, whatever it was. So like I didn't really have a chance to be nervous. And I was coming off the heels of the most nerve wracking thing, in my opinion, that you can do in comedy, which is a late night set. Um, So it it just the stars kind of aligned. Um, And with Colbert, I had been working on a set for Conan. I'd been back and forth with uh, JP from Conan and he'd give me notes. And um, and then I was running that set at Stand Up New York, and then the Colbert Booker was at Stand Up New Jessica York. Jessica Pilot? Yeah, okay. Jessica saw the set, was really taken by the set, and was like, hey, I can get, I love this set, I can get you on Colbert, like, next month. So I was like, well, I don't know what to do, because I didn't want to offend, you know what I mean? Right. I've been working with JP, and I didn't want to seem like I was undermining anybody or doing anything. So I emailed him, I was like, I was like, here's all the things, just tell me what the right move is to do, and he very graciously was like, if she can get you on next month, do that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, from there, it was a little bit more than a month process, probably like a two, three month process. Um, but then, yeah, from there, did Colbert. And, yeah, it was, uh, and that was the most, it's the most nerve wracking thing because there's no stand up before you. It's, right. There's no reason for stand up to happen. You know what I mean? Well, it's also such a, it's so unlike the other 
late night shows because it's in the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yeah. So it's it's not like you have any interaction no. with the audience. No. And you, then you're standing you there and you're like, the Beatles were here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a weird – somebody told me this, and I think they were trying to tell me this years ago to comfort me. But at the same time, I was like, oh, that's too much pressure. Um, I think it was years ago, Adam Newman was about to do Letterman. Right. And I think either Mark Maron told him or he'd heard Mark Maron say this where he was like, for those five minutes, enjoy it because you're ABC or CBS. Mm-hmm. You're the network. There's nobody else. And I think he meant that as a way of like, isn't that kind of cool? But in my head, right. I was like, that is too much pressure. I can't be a television network. Right. If somebody, <laughs> tuned, right, if somebody tuned into CBS, it's you. <laughs> right. You're in control right. of the CBS airwaves for right. five minutes. Yeah, that's insane. Who would do that? Well, so, I thought I thought it was more nerve-wracking. And, because, you know, I've never done it myself. Sure. But I thought the more nerve-wracking thing about performing on that stage for either Letterman or Colbert was the idea that because there's so much separation, you either have to wait for the laughs yes. or you're more likely to get claps. Yeah. It's a little like, bit of Like both. I've talked to comedians, I think even back to Letterman, where their sets were full of applause breaks. And yeah. It was so jarring because when you're doing yes. the cellar or you're doing a bar show yeah, yeah. in Astoria, <laughs> it's like that's not what's happening every – 30 seconds. Totally. Yeah, I mean, and you build your jokes for the rhythm of that, like, sort of um, instant laughter, mm-hmm. you know? So where it's like it builds and builds and builds and the punchlines at grand finale kind of thing. So with there, you're right. The laughs come as, like, a big wave and the rhythm is very different. So as you're doing the set, you get used to the rhythm. And it's just something that throws you off at first. But then, like, I think if you've been doing comedy long enough, you're able to kind of adjust on the fly to, like, what that's going to be. You do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You mentioned Michelle Wolf, and you've worked with her a couple times. Yes, you wrote on her sketch show on Netflix, and then worked with her on her—I don't want to say infamous, so I'll say legendary, <laughs> legendary sure, White House sure. correspondence yeah, yeah, speech. Yeah. What was it like writing for Michelle? Um, I mean, Michelle is the hardest working person I've ever met. Uh, M- Michelle is—I um, mean, I don't know how many jokes I threw at Michelle. That were like, you know, Michelle were like, these are great. And they like never made it to air because Michelle, if you send Michelle a great joke, she recognizes it as a great joke, mm-hmm. but like takes it as a challenge to beat that joke. And that's partly why she's as successful as she is, is because she is um, such a driven person. She's such a perfectionist and such a, like, she's an athlete, you know what I mean? And she kind of has that mindset into, like, how she approaches comedy a little bit. But I just knew her as, like, a goofball. She used to open the open mic at the pit, and she was just, like, this, you know, I don't know, red-haired girl that make me laugh with her silly voice. So, like, we were always just friends. So when she became famous, I think the friend part never really dropped off, which was cool. So I've never really... Like it'll it'll always I'll have to be reminded I think of her celebrity but mm-hmm. like usually I'm like that's just my dumb friend Michelle, <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of yeah the 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 dinner man like um right so when you see your dumb friend Michelle yeah <laughs> yeah w- one standing up there like skewering Sarah Huckabee Sanders and, and everybody else in the room but then seeing the massive reaction that I got what was it like seeing your dumb friend it, in the spotlight like that I mean. So at the time, we were working on The Break, the Netflix show, right. and we were in pre-production. So we were kind of doing sample shows every day to get used to what a workday would be like. 
Um, and in the room, we didn't realize that it was that because it just felt like the gig feels like a bad corporate gig. Yeah. And I think you do enough of them. And you're, in the, you're in the banquet yeah. hall of a hotel. Yeah. yeah. You're like Chris Christie's there. People are eating. You're just like, oh, I've done this show. But I've just I've done this show before. It's a VFW in Parsippany. But I know the show. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So I'm like, this is just that set. I was like, she delivered the jokes. Great. They were awesome. Who cares how it went over in the room? People are going to love it out there because this was a really original take. And especially because everyone was like, she's going to skewer Trump. And it was like, no, she turned it on the opposite and she put it on the media. And they were sort of baffled by that. Yeah. And it was great to watch. But we really thought it was just like, it was just going to be that. So we partied that night, had a great time. We're all in like disbelief. Like we were on the, you know, we're on the front cover of the New York Times, like dancing. Our, 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 like our, one of my best friends from childhood who lives in DC snuck into the party. He's on the front page. <laughs> He's just a teacher. He's on the front page of the New York Times. So. So we were just laughing on the train back to New York. Mm -hmm. And then as we're getting on Twitter, we're like, this is kind of like blowing up. And then more and more, like we're sending each other tweets and like there's a real buzz on the train. And then the next day we had to write monologue jokes for the show in preparation for a real show. Mm -hmm. And Michelle was all the monologue jokes. So in the room, in the writer's room, Michelle normally would read all the monologue jokes that Mm -hmm. were submitted. So Michelle would have to read like, ugh. Uh, sh- <laughs> you know, shit for brains, redheaded comedian Michelle Wolf says because it was all the writers just right. like it was so fun. That part was so fun. That was one of the most fun days. Was the day after, and like Michelle became the top story, and we all got to write jokes about her. And then she'd have to read whatever we wrote in the writers' room. What did you learn though from watching her deal with the intense blowback? Um, super smart. I mean, Michelle's just like so like. Uh, I don't want to say, like, politically savvy is the wrong word, but, like, I think media savvy Mm -hmm. in in terms of, like, even when we were writing jokes leading up to it, like, you know, we wanted to make fun of, like, the way Mitch McConnell looked or this or that. Michelle was very smart to be, like, you can't attack that because then they'll attack me on that and then I'll just be known as that. So she was very good about... not doing that so she w- so the blowback that she got felt unjustified so she came out looking like the winner as opposed to them having like any real like uh righteousness in what they could say about her um so no she handled that she handled that super well it almost like she had been ready for that moment like her whole life in a way wow yeah and then you know michelle's savvy and then you had previously worked with sam morell yeah. who's proven himself very savvy with Social media and YouTube yeah. was that was that part of the the calculus for you in terms of making your special for YouTube? Uh, a little bit. I mean, Sam was the one where like he did it and showed. I think he, you know, because I think maybe a couple other people had done it before, but like Sam had so much success with his YouTube special that it kind of showed where the money would come from and something like that. Because I think at first that was a trepidation with a lot of us because right. it's like. Usually, you know, you get paid to make a special and that's, you know, that's where that's where the hard the hard work comes from the money you get from this thing you're putting on a network. But with Sam, I was like, he was going to do it for free. So we were all like a little skittish about it. But then seeing that it's like, oh, the accessibility on YouTube is just so much greater than any platform. And then these people feel like they're discovering you rather than they like you've been shoved in their face. So they feel like a certain ownership within you. So they're more apt to become your fans and go see you on the road. So the money that you get comes from that headlining work on the road. So I've I've now understood that. And, yeah, with this, I, I was like um, 
I wanted just to see because I don't I don't really because when Sam did his it was attached to Comedy Central so he had right, a it little was a, it was yeah. at least on their YouTube channel at yeah, first and they have a very big following so mm-hmm. they were able and that's not to discredit it's a great special and there's a reason why it has so many views um, but that helps in like sort of the the first movement of the special um, so I kind of wanted to just see uh, doing it on my own and having you know friends share it and do a bunch of podcasts to promote it and just kind of see what happens. And I don't really have any YouTube following. It was more out of curiosity and more out of like, I didn't put a ton of money into the special, partly because I was doing Fringe and that's <laughs> decimated my bank account. But um, right. I just kind of wanted to uh, see out of curiosity of like, hey, what's the cheapest way I can do a special and what is, what is that? what gets out of that for me? And so far, it's been cool. Is that also why you filmed at Acme in Minneapolis instead of at the Cellar or the Village Underground? Because <laughs> yeah. most of the other, most of the other, like I New York comics, film I know, man. There's I, at, at that, the Cellar. <laughs> that was uh, I. So I mean, Acme is a great club. I love Acme, and I've I've done it. So the, the idea with doing Acme was that. I've done Acme like five or six times. Mm-hmm. Been lucky enough. It's one of the best clubs in the country. Every time, it's been an absolute layup as a crowd. But so I was just really looking to record another album. I really wasn't thinking too much about the special as much as I just want to record another album, get some royalties off the album, make a little bit of money. Um, but then a friend of mine, a local comic there, was like, they have three cameras that shoot in 4K at the club. You might as well try to shoot a special there. So I was like, yeah, great. Um, but the weekend was Halloween weekend. So it was a half a house. Nobody knew what they were there for. Those yeah, you do mention it in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, by, yeah. The way, by the way, we're filming a special. Yeah, yeah. that was the and reaction. And you it in a by the way kind of... Well, man, dude, the host... And, you know, funny comic, young mm-hmm. comic, but the host barely acknowledged that it was happening. So I was like, I had to come out there and say it. And when I did, they were so confused as to what that even meant. Mm-hmm. And then tepid response at best throughout the whole weekend. All the young, cool people in Minneapolis were out partying on Halloween. It was like, it, not that like an old, and, you know, an older crowd could be great. It was just that they weren't so comedy savvy as a crowd mm-hmm. so it was it was like i taped a road weekend um with the club cameras but it was you know it's kind of what i could do and i was like let me just put it up i hired you know jason katz great editor to work on it and um yeah so far it's been all right man like i i, I really uh I'm, i've 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 been i guess like i don't know what the word is but like uh more it's done more than i thought it would well, there's also something to be said, too, for having it be more natural, because sometimes yeah. stand-up specials, when they're, when they're too per- slickly produced, I agree with you. it doesn't feel... I didn't, totally. I didn't even say it. No, you're no, like, but I know like, what I you agree. Mean. Whatever you're about to- No, no, but I, I know what you're about to say. It doesn't... It, it doesn't, doesn't feel real. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. It doesn't duplicate the actual experience it's of totally. being, in a, in, being in a room. Yes. Um, but at least with your one-man show, whether it was... I remember... I think you first started doing it at the Creek in the Cave. Yeah, I did it back a week when it was in Long Island City. Yeah. Is the week at the Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even whether you're doing it way back then or now in the summer of 2022, when you're doing it for a month long run at the Edinburgh Fringe, at least for that show, people are going to come in expecting something. 
Yes. Based on the title alone, they're like, okay, (laughs) this is going to be something. Yeah. I'm excited for that because I don't think I've had that too, too much with the show. I mean, I think, yeah, I know I do it around town and I do it on the road a little Mm -hmm. bit and I think people half expect it, but I think because of the nature of the fringe and the shows that are there, I think that hopefully, um, and I've been told that, you know, people are going to be there to see it. Um, So that is exciting to me that there's not going to be a moment where I sort of like have to explain or make a concession based on like the audience's uh, um, not knowledge of it. Right. And they also probably I have not been to Scotland yet, but. I would presume that even people in Scotland know who Danny DeVito is. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, I'll say this. <laughs> Talking about like American references that might not translate. I yeah. Think Danny DeVito. I think Danny DeVito's ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, right. I think so, man. <laughs> people uh, can envision yeah. the penguin. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I got nervous. It, they, they might not have watched Taxi. Sure, sure, but... sure, sure. Yeah, I'm not asking. I'm not asking for them to know Throw Mom Off the Train. But... Oh, <laughs> they probably know Throw Mom Off the Train. If they they're my know, age, they know Throw Mom Off the Train. They might, yeah. They might, you know, them know twins. They know it's always sunny. I'm twins. sure. Yeah, yeah. They gotta know twins. I, Even if they don't know, it's always sunny. They yeah. They twins, twins and the penguin. Yeah, has to translate exactly. right. Okay, so to bring it back, uh, how, I, I said I didn't want to spoil the show. So let me ask you this. <laughs> sure. How has deciding to do this show, mm-hmm. and then the few years that you've been developing it? And working on it, how has this process changed your ideas about what you want to do with your life and with your comedy? Because it's like it's there's a lot of revelations that happen. <laughs> yeah. So how is that? Like I know it's changed you as a person. Sure. Because it has to. Of course. But how has that also like impacted how you think about comedy and everything else? Um, I think yet to be seen, but I would say like even the seeds of like putting together a next hour Mm -hmm. I think will probably be done differently because like everything else was done like so piecemealed you know you do you do a stand-up hour at least like in the U.S. like joke by joke by joke and then all of a sudden you look out and you go okay cool I have 40 minutes let me put this on a thing let me figure out chunks and segues and like how to make this kind of seem cohesive but with this it's done as a whole so I think and it, in some ways, it's easier to write this way because you have a focus. You know, you're like, you know, okay, this piece needs to be here because this piece is intrinsic to the story. So now it's about making this piece funny enough to be here. Um, so I think going forward, it's I think I'll try to write the next hour like that, where it's like I'm kind of coming up with like what I want to do with the hour before Mm -hmm. I start to write it rather than just being like, okay, here's a joke. Here's a joke. Here's a joke. Here's a joke. It just is a little bit more fulfilling. And then also just like, it's a little easier to write honestly than just picking ideas out of the ether at random. (laughs) That gets (laughs) Rather than just sitting on the end train going. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. You do this 13 years. It gets, you exhaust your brain. Like, you know, everything, you know, there's a lot of brain noise. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's too much brain noise. Is that why you titled that special then? I thought it a brain noise because of a, a joke within the special about it was something my therapist had me name the voice inside my head because I'm mm-hmm. very hard on myself to take the gravity away. And um, it was just the idea that like um, that's where my life is at. Like mm-hmm. my friends are starting families, picking out names for their kids. I'm doing that for the voice in my head. Um, they're like, we're going to call him Charlie. I was like, I'm going with Kevin for my brain noise. <laughs> and it just felt like a good title. Well, Kevin, if you're out there. 
Oh, he's in there. <laughs> Danny DeVito, if you're out there, uh, if you can't make it to Scotland, please check please. out. Damn. Check out, check out your boy, Anthony DeVito. God, we need a union, man. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Of I really course, appreciate man. It. it was a pleasure. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.